You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Holly Randall Unfiltered is brought to you by Lalo. It's almost Valentine's Day, and you want to give your partner something special, something sexy. Then you want to check out Lalo's wide range of high-end sex toys. Lalo's products are sleek and classy looking and boast cutting-edge technology. This Valentine's Day, they're offering unfiltered listeners 20% off any products not already in discount when you use code HOLLY20 at Lalo.com. That's 20% off with code HOLLY20 at L-E-L-O Hi, I'm Holly Randall, and welcome to my podcast, Holly Randall Unfiltered. This is a show about sex, the adult industry, and the people in it. I'm a 21-year veteran of this fascinating little industry, and as the eldest child of the trailblazing erotic photographer, Suze Randall, you could say I grew up in it. So forget everything you think you know about porn, because this show is going to change your mind. My guests are some of the biggest names in the industry, and we unabashedly reveal the real behind-the-scenes stories. The funny, the inspiring, the tragic, and the bizarre. Everyone has an opinion about sex work, but few people actually listen to the sex workers. So sit back and prepare yourself for a podcast, which is honest, raw, and unfiltered. Today on the show, I have something a little different for you guys, a little more academic leaning. I have Paul McGinn, a professor of urban planning and geography from the University of Western Australia here on the show. He actually focuses on the geography and regulation of the sex industry within everything from adult stores to sex work, prostitution, and porn consumption. So this is a really interesting conversation about the correlation between geography and porn regulations and sex industry. So I thought it would be something different to talk about here on Holly Randall Unfiltered. So let's welcome Palm again. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have a very different and interesting episode. I have Dr. Paul McGinn. He is a professor of urban planning and geography. And if you're wondering, like, how does that apply to porn? Well, Paul, how does that apply to porn? Uh, Well, everything happens in space and time. Mm -hmm. And that's what geographers are all about. And porn happens here in our in the valley here in Los Angeles, and it's changed over time. So, and as a geographer, that's what I'm interested in. Hmm. You know. So tell us a little bit about your background and, um, you know, what makes you an expert on this? Oh, okay. Um, well, people might hear that I've got an accent. Mm. Um, no, I didn't place that at all. No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, it's not an Australian accent, even though I live in Australia, uh, and I've lived there for 17 years. Um, I'm from Belfast in Northern Ireland, or the north of Ireland, depending on which side of the fence that you sit on in terms mm-hmm. of your religious backgrounds. Um, so I grew up in Belfast in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. So during the what we call the Troubles. I was just going to say, that was a very um, kind of chaotic time. It was, um, and... 
when I w- we were very young, or when I was very young, uh, my mother had taken us out of one side of the city where we lived. So I'm from a Catholic background um, and lived on the Catholic side of the city. My mom took us to another part of the city, which was largely Protestant, uh, but it was a new housing estate, a new big subdivision. Uh, and we were kicked out of our house, basically, because of our religious background. So, And that was about in, in the early 70s, 71, 72. Wow. And there were about... 60,000 people in Northern Ireland were disp- or in Belfast were displaced between 1968 and 1972. Catholics and Protestants who were displaced from their homes. And we were one of those families, basically. And I can remember it happening. Because you know, of I, your religious background? Yeah, well, basically we got a, we got a knock on the door one night uh, and we were told that it would be advisable for you not to be here. Wow. So uh, some friendly man came to the house and to my parents and then basically the next day we were out of there and so, we were homeless. So these were men who, these were not actual authority figures. They were people in the neighborhood who were, I would assume were probably threatening some kind of violence if you didn't leave. Is that the case? Yeah, they, they were, they were part of basically the paramilitary organizations on, okay. the, on the Protestant side. Okay. Um, and so we were displaced. We were forced out of our home very quickly uh, and ended up back on the other side of Belfast, where West Belfast, where we're from uh, originally. Uh, but we had to squat for a while. Um, and I, we lived in a school for a short period of time wow. with a bunch of other families who were displaced. And the room that we slept in and stayed in is the room that I actually studied geography in when I went back to high school. Oh, that is so crazy. And when I walked into that room as a high school student, I just had this kind of, I know this place. This is like really freaky. Mm-hmm. And that's where I had kind of studied geography. And the house that we ended up in, had there had been a Protestant family had lived in that house. Mm-hmm. And they had been displaced. They were forced out, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if they were physically forced out or if they were constructively forced out because things were just happening mm-hmm. so dynamically. Um but they left the house and we were allocated this house by the housing authority. Um, and it was really interesting because when they left the house, they had gone into the attic and scribbled some notes on the beams in the, in the attic and chalk, which had said kind of God save Ulster and for, you know, uh, God save the Queen uh, to kind of show that they were from a, from a Protestant background. And when I was home uh, about eight years ago, when my mum passed away, we were clearing out the house and I went up to the attic and there was still that faint line wow. of chalk on the um, on the beams in the house. Wow! You know, so so that was my um, very early early days in, in Belfast. And then as a teenager in the nineteen eighties, um, it was pretty. You know, it was a pretty hectic period of time. Basically, yeah. we weren't allowed to go into the city centre. We lived out in the suburbs uh, on the on the edge of West Belfast. My mum would never let us kind of go take the bus into the city when we, when we were, you know, when I was a young teenager uh, because there would be bombs on buses, there would be bombs, you know, going off in the city. My dad was in a, caught up in a bomb in the 1970s with his sister. There was a bomb put in a, a post box where you don't, you know, you put your letters. Right. And that had blown up in, in, uh, in the city centre. My dad was, and his sister, and a whole bunch of other people were caught up in that. So wow. very formative kind of part of my you know, uh, I suppose life, and something that ultimately drove me 
I suppose psychologically. I didn't. I always wanted out of Belfast, mm-hmm. and I've ended up in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, but I wanted. Yeah. I wanted out when I, when I became after finishing high school. I wanted to go to university. I um, applied to universities in England. Uh, didn't get in because uh, my grades weren't weren't the best, uh, and then uh, went to university. Got into just scraped into university uh, back home. Mm-hmm. You know. in Australia. No, in Belfast. In Belfast. In, in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Okay. So, so you went to university in Belfast. Yep. And then when did you move to Australia? Uh, 2003. Okay. So um, before moving to Australia, I was in London for seven years. So mm-hmm. I lived in London and I did my PhD there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really where, I, I suppose, the seeds of my research on the sex, in, sex industry probably started. Mm. Um. We used to hang out in Soho. Uh, we used to go out at night, and Soho is like the kind of hyper-sexualized space in London. It's mm-hmm. got sex shops and clip joints and queer bars and stuff like that there. So that exposed me, you know, to kind of things that didn't ex- really exist in Belfast right. at the time. So I was kind of intrigued about this stuff. And this, then when I moved to Australia, um, I suppose that seed then sprouted mm-hmm. is probably the best way to describe it. Mm. And then I started I started doing my research in this around about two thousand eleven, looking at sex shops or you mm-hmm. guys you guys call them adult novelty stores. Mm-hmm. You know? Also sex shops. Yeah. So what what about Australia? Was there something in Australia that made you kind of decide you said the seed sprouted there. Was there something about Australia and the sex geography in Australia that made you decide to really like go into this? Yeah, I, I moved to Adelaide. I'd, I, when I initially moved, I was living in Perth, mm-hmm. and I'd noticed lots of sex shops, mm. uh, and they were they weren't concentrated in like the CBD. They were in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to Adelaide, same thing. I was like, this is really interesting mm. because my my experience in London was that they were concentrated in the city, in yeah, the city, in, you know, in Soho. Um, right. And if you think about where sex shops are located, generally here in the US, uh, and it dep- depends where you go, of course. So they're normally in inner city kind of locations, mm. or they're on off ramps on f- freeways, you know, yeah, on, in the, the middle on, of nowhere. on the big loops, and they're like isolated in the middle of, no- like you say, middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. hard to access. Um, so. That kind of got me really kind of thinking about this. And, I, and as, a, as, as a geographer and a planner, I was kind of thinking, well, how are these things kind of moving out into the, you know, the suburbs? You know, why are they moving out there? Um, and, of course, planning regulates where certain activities, land uses can, should, can be located and should mm-hmm. be located and stuff. So that really piqued my interest. So I started looking at basically the geography of sex shops. And mm. uh, uh, when I moved, after moved, being in, in Adelaide, I moved back to Perth and that's when it, that's when the project started proper, basically, in terms of looking at things. Right. So, uh, so I started to map where all the sex shops were. Um, I had a, an honours student, uh, a female honours student, and she wanted to do this project with me. And she went around, we did a survey to, uh, of all the adult shops in Belfast or in non-Belfast and Perth. And there were about, there were about, we found out there were about 40, 42 stores in, in Perth. Mm-hmm. And this is for a population of about 1.6 million people. 
So a lot so, of sex uh, shops for a small population. For a small population and spread in all sorts of interesting locations. And a relative diversity of stores as well. Mm. Um, the classic seedy and sleazy type store. Um, through to more kind of corporate chain stores who would cater for um, you know either couples or, or what would be more female-friendly stores. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and she went around... Um, she did this wonderful lot of legwork. She went around and hand-delivered all these surveys to these adult stores. And she went into one in particular, which I drove past recently. Um, and you have to get into it by going around to the, the back door into mm-hmm. it. And uh, they had what are called wank tanks, you know, so viewing booths where you know, right. videos are. And she said she walked in and all she could see was the tops of people's heads as she walked into the store. And Were she they, was, like, kind of moving? Yeah, and like, like a- Mr. Bobblehead, you know, it's kind of like... <laughs> you know. And she said that was, that was the kind of, you know, out of all the stores that she went to, that was the, uh, the most confronting. Mm. And she actually drove around. Her dad drove her around to deliver these surveys to oh, all man, the stores. Oh, man, that must so, have been interesting. And, but she had a great time doing it and I think she learned an awful lot, mm. you know, um, not just about adult stores, but actually about planning and also getting to see mm-hmm. other parts of Perth where she, where she had never been to. Right. You know, and I did a pro- another project on strip clubs um, with another student and again, a female student. And this female line is going to be important, I think, when we get on to okay. porn a little bit later. Um we sent, we, again, we did a survey. We wanted to ask people about, you know, how, what was their interactions like with the planning regulations and local mm-hmm. governments and stuff like this. And, and we sent the survey around to about 60, 65 um, strip clubs around Australia, all over Australia. How many responses do you think we got? I don't know. Have a guess. <sighs> how many did you say? 60? 60. 60? Three? Close. None. Really? Not one. Wow. <laughs> totally, you know, uh, the student was like, shit. Yeah. Well, my project's just gone up in smoke here. Yeah. You know, and uh, and as students do, they panic and stuff. I said, look, don't worry about it. This is a finding in its own right. Right. You know, mm-hmm. let's look at the regulations. Let's just look at all the plans and the regulations in each of those cities. Mm. And we can c- carve up project mm-hmm. uh, out of that so yeah. so you said that there was a concentration of adult stores in the city centers in london but in perth they were more scattered in the suburbs is that correct Mi- mixture of both there, okay. there are some very established stores um in the cbd but there has been this suburbanization and of stores you know um in the you know what geographers would call the inner, middle, and outer ring suburbs, basically. Okay. Um, and, and you said that there was different kinds of sex stores, like ones that catered more to couples and ones that did not. Did you find the ones that catered more to couples, were those the kinds that were more common in the suburbs or no? Um, no, a, a bit of both, really, a, okay. a good mix. Um, there's a two. There's one particular um, chain of stores, which is owned by a guy in Perth, and he had stores all over the place, basically mm-hmm. in Perth. Um, and there's a, another store 
who are Melbourne-based, uh, and they, again, have viewing booths. And that shop's got the best neon in terms of adult store, um, you know, shop front, mm-hmm. storefront. Um, and I use that that store on the cover of my book, Suburban Sexcapes. Um, and it's a kind of a typical seedy and sleazy kind of store because, mm-hmm. because of what it sells inside. So it sells pornography. Mm-hmm. And it also has viewing booths as well. Mm-hmm. It has live, it has live peep shows as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, um, I think it's the only place that had, has, no, actually there's another one, there's another um, store that has live shows. Um, but most stores uh, will, will, will sell kind of, porno- will sell pornography, lingerie mm-hmm. and sex toys. Mm-hmm. You know, the corporate chain stores are women-friendly and more couple friendly. Mm-hmm. They're staffed by women generally. They don't have. I would assume they don't have wank tanks. <laughs> no, no they wank, don't have wank tanks. No wank and tanks. Peep show booths. How long ago was it that you were seeing these stores that had these wank tanks? I'm just curious because, you know, most people. I mean, the internet has allowed people to anonymously view porn, yeah. which I know is generally the preference for people. So I feel like those kinds of booths would die out or be non-existent. But then on the other hand, I have also heard that Australia kind of throttles its internet. Is that true? Yeah. Um, well, there's there's other interesting things that go on in adult stores that have viewing booths. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending where they are, so if um, there, I know one store, it's, it's now closed, but they had viewing booths and they had glory holes. Oh, so there's actual sex happening there between customers. So it's not paid sex. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It's not paid. It's not paid sex. Okay. It's part of basically the cruising scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, what what was happening is it um, it was heterosexual males mm-hmm. going and watching porn mm-hmm. in these viewing booths, right? And getting off with other males in the booth next door. Interesting. Yeah. So really interesting kind of sexual complexities and dynamics kind of going on. So they would go and they would watch heterosexual porn and then how would they meet? I mean, it's it's not like there's guys just waiting behind the glory hole. Just, just in case you don't know what a glory hole is, dear listeners, because sometimes I forget to explain things. A glory hole is a wall where there's a hole cut out. You put your penis in there and then some anonymous person behind the wall sucks your dick. Or, or, mas- or masturbating yeah. orally or whatever manually. Yes. Yeah. So sorry. It, it's just part of a scene. So it's um, you know, it's like I suppose in terms of um, gay. it's like how rest stop bathrooms in America are supposed to be like big secret gay like meeting places. So gay cruising spaces. Yeah. yeah. So if you're in that scene, you'll know about it. And um, I think Katie Do you have, like meeting times and like eight o'clock, and they'll be like. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't done any research. I mean, clearly this, so. you haven't really like done the in-depth research, Not the in- in-depth that research. a real, you know, yeah. professor would. I mean, you, well, you say I'm not a real yeah, professor. Yeah, I feel you like know. you need to well, go like experience yeah. the entire well, thing. Well, there, there, there has been some, there has been some research done on this. Mm. Um, uh, there's another phenomena in the UK um, called cottaging. What is that? So. Okay, so this is on on queer scenes, basically. Okay, so this is where in public toilets and parks, mm-hmm. uh, gay men 
It's like rest stops here. Yeah, yeah. we'd meet up basically. Okay, yeah, and, yeah. We and, have that here too. And, and have sex. And it's called cottaging because in the parks in, in the UK, particularly in London, the toilet blocks look like little cottages, mm. little old houses because they're, they're quite old, old buildings. Um, and this is, um, I mean, this is a fairly long standing practice. And mm. obviously, the risk of getting caught. I mean, the most famous example of this is probably the late George Michael when he right. was caught here. Uh, yes. in, in a public toilet. But in order to avoid or reduce or minimize the risk of being caught, people would bring a shopping bag with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and it's an empty shopping bag. So you'd open the shopping bag and one person would stand inside the shopping bag. So if anybody came along and was to look underneath, they would only see one person in the toilet. So it's a clever way of avoiding basically taking part in a in a lewd what people would call, define as a lewd act. Oh, okay. So, so wait, one person would stand inside the shopping bag. So you would look underneath. You see one pair of feet and then a shopping you'd, bag. Yeah, you'd see that the person. For some reason, was rustling person, and moving. Around you'd see the person sitting on the toilet. Okay. As if they were going to the toilet. Yeah, yeah. And there would be a bag beside them, oh. and that person is standing. It'd be a tall shopping bag, no, or the doors just, would have to be. Uh, I don't. Well, know. I guess it, it depends on how high the doors are. Uh, doors in England aren't like toilets here. Okay, they're no, lower. They're, they're longer. They're, low, they're lower down. Okay, gotcha, okay. gotcha, gotcha. So the shopping per- bag door ratio. Yeah, situation. yeah. So you got to have that very, very, out. very, very important. <laughs> I don't think you could get away with it here, um, given some of the toilets I've been in in the last couple of days. Yeah, but um. So yeah, so there's these. These practices mm-hmm. basically, um, you know, uh, go on in, in kind of different scenes. And K- Katie Jane mentioned on her episode with you um, another great British uh, phenomenon, sexual phenomena of dogging. Yes, when so, people have sex in cars. Uh, yes, and but it's about people come and watch. watch. Yeah, and you can watch from afar, or you can watch from up close. Yeah, and. You can get off when you're up close as well. Yeah. So it's, you know. um, So interesting. All of these, like, it's just interesting how, you know, people trying to really repress sexuality has created all of these kind of secret coded ways to, you know, do the things that you want to do. And, and, and ultimately it's, it's a real shame that the stigma against homosexuality has forced these men to, you know, find these secret meeting spots. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, look, there's 7 billion of us on the planet. Yeah. I mean, if you think of the permutations of expressions of sexuality, everything yeah. and anything, you know, uh, is likely to happen in various mm-hmm. ways. And yeah. I think where we do have uh, social, moral, political rules and regulations which oppress particular sexual minorities and so forth, I mean, they have to do things you know, secretly, secretly and so forth. And, mm. uh, you know, I think that's, um, you know, I mean, ultimately it's unfair, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it's also, I mean, humans are a fairly risk-taking mm. kind of bunch of people as well. But I think, you know, I was gonna say some of us like living on the edge. I was going to say there's know? probably also some excitement in the idea of getting caught, which is why a lot of that porn about, like, I got caught by my husband having sex with... My stepbrother probably well, because everything's step, but you know what I mean. Like that's a whole thing on itself. Yeah. Well, I mean the 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 step scene 
you know, a genre, if it's, can I call it a genre, a category? It's a category of pornography, it's not a genre. It is a ca- I guess it could be both, yeah. right? Because um, a, a lot of the narrative around that there is, you know, the risk of, like you getting say, caught. of getting caught. Yeah. And also You're the, not supposed to do it, it's taboo. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really think that we humans really enjoy taboos, mm. you know. Uh, of course and, we do. We di- love not doing what we're told. Because, yeah, I mean, the f- and I think this came up in your episode with your folks. I mean, the first thing that a child does when a parent says, don't do that, what do they do at the first opportunity when their parents aren't there? They go and do it. Yeah. You know? It's like yeah. we need, like, boundaries and we need rules and we need regulations to have a society that that works, but we also want to push against that as well. Yeah, and... So in terms of those boundaries, just coming back to adult stores for a second. So what's clearly uh, happening in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. uh, the number of stores has generally increased, you know, physical bricks and mortar stores, but now online Mm -hmm. retailing. The volume of stuff that people are purchasing in terms of sex toys and lingerie and and so forth has expanded. So Mm. the world is moving in this direction mm-hmm. and regulators are moving generally in the opposite direction because yeah. they don't want these things in, no, to be open. So planning regulations are, tend to be quite strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, things about what you can have in the, on, you know, what the shop front or the storefront might look like, what can be in the window. Um, so it, there's a real oppositional force mm-hmm. going on here in terms of what markets and in terms of how we express our desires, preferences, needs, wants, demands. And what politicians and bureaucrats think, yeah. you know, should be happening. Yeah. You know, and then there's other wider cultural things. You know, I, I, I was doing, did, did some research looking at um, consumption of sex toys in mm. Australia. And I got some data from a store, an online store in, in Melbourne. And you can see very clearly a trend of this big spike in consumption, mm-hmm. volume. And this is a fairly small store. But it tied in with Fifty Shades of Grey, the release mm. about that. So, and, you know, people call it mummy porn as a, yeah. as a type of literature, you know, uh, light porn, like BDSM light, yeah. you know, or full BDSM. But it's clearly resonated with consumers and, yeah. you know, the wider public. Right. Because people have gone off and started to explore BDSM in right. kind of various different ways. And yeah. that's reflected in the sale, the sale, the general sale volumes of stuff that gone up, but also the type of products that people were buying because it, yeah. it was BDSM related. Yeah, I think that that book made, um, you know, the idea of BDSM palatable because it was kind of encapsulated in this like romance novel. And also too, what I think appeals to women is that the main character was this kind of plain girl who nobody would necessarily like twice at but then the the male protagonist was this beautiful rich man who was unattainable and everybody wanted him but he wouldn't you know he wouldn't have anyone but he had to have this really plain girl and it's like every girl's dream you know that that they might be rescued by this beautiful prince even though they may not be so beautiful that they deserve it it kind of almost harkens back to the whole disney princess thing that we're sold when we're children so it's interesting how it like kind of works itself out in an adult sexual space through a book like that. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, E.L. James, I mean, um, is, for want of a better word, is just an ordinary woman in a sense, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that ordering, or ordinariness um, in terms of who the author is as well 
adds to the appeal of this. I think because yeah. other people out there can, can identify this going, yeah, because most of us are ordinary. Yeah, well, you know? yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you and I are not, but you know, everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so there, you know, I, I just think um, there are these just kind of wonderful dynamics going on. So, when we, as a geographer, looking at kind of um, sex spaces, it's interesting where society's gone as measured by kind of culture and by markets and where regulators what regular, regulators are trying to do. Mm. And of course, quite not quite often, but you know, sometimes regulators get caught out, you know, being hypocritical. So they're, you know, about, you know, their attitudes towards sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, mean, I don't care if a politician goes and sees a sex worker or watches porn or goes in an adult store, but if they're out campaigning, and saying this stuff is vile and this should be made illegal and stuff like this here, then I think that that hypocrisy is something that has to be challenged. Yeah, it's something, unfortunately, that's so common. Um, We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk about how the San Fernando Valley turned into the hub of porn and also performers as a minority community and housing discrimination. So hang on, we'll be right back. You guys, I'm so excited about my new sponsor because these people are very near and dear to my heart. They've been one of my main clients, if not my main client, for like over the past 10 years. I'm talking, of course, about Twisties, and they're sponsoring my podcast now, and I'm so thrilled. If you didn't know, Twisties is the ultimate site for lesbian and girl-girl scenes. It explores your deepest and sexiest fantasies. I've been producing for Twisties for years, like I said, and honestly, I can say it's some of the work I have been the most proud of and the most excited to share with the world. Twisties has been creating the hottest glamour porn for over 18 years with the top names in the industry, now exclusively streaming girl-girl content. Their scenes showcase the most recognizable models working with the best fresh faces, making waves in adult entertainment. Twisties Trade of the Months feature exclusive content and videos produced by me, highlighting the hottest girls of the moment, letting them show off what makes them so addicting. Treat of the Months have included Gina Valentina, Alina Lopez, Emily Willis, Desiree Dolce, Demi Sutra, and Twisty's current Treat of the Year, Molly Stewart. To unwrap the hottest treats and mouthwatering scenes, visit twisties.com or you can find them on Twitter at Twisties and on Instagram at Twisties Treats. Hello, listeners. Just a quick reminder that if you want to support this podcast and continue to allow me to bring you quality programming on the adult industry and sexuality in general, that joining my Patreon is something that really helps me out. At patreon.com slash hollyrandallunfiltered, you get access to watch these interviews live, which means you get them way before they are released on the free platforms. Plus, you get access to free prints. I give away free books, memberships to my website, access to my bonus podcast, My LA Porn Life with Eva, as well as exclusive behind-the-scenes interviews with your favorite stars that I do not release on the public platforms. So go to patreon.com slash hollyrandallunfiltered and join me there. Okay, so we're back. So um, you also wrote an op-ed piece about like Porn Valley. 
right? And kind of how, like, why is the San Fernando Valley like the hub of porn? Because even I, it's funny because people always assume that I live in the valley. If you know LA at all, there's the valley and then there's kind of the city. And those are like the two main spaces of LA. I live in the city. I actually live near Culver City. So I always joke that I'm like the only person in porn who doesn't live in the valley because literally everybody else lives in the valley and people are always shocked that I don't live there. So why do you think that the valley itself became like the epicenter of porn? Well, well, the, I suppose the, the first big structural reason is, you know, the, the porn industry has its roots in New York. Mm. And uh, I mean, the short, the long and short of it is, is basically it got squeezed out mm-hmm. of New York by regulators. Mm. Uh, and, I think there's a uh, there's a synergy clearly going on with Hollywood being here mm-hmm. in terms of there being a, a big film industry that this is a what geographers would you know probably call a kind of a, a natural area for porn mm-hmm. production uh, to gravitate towards um, and I think with the with the valley of course it's um, at the time um, it would have been cheap, cheaper rents. Still is cheaper. Cheaper rent. I mean, it's still ridiculous, but like compared to you know, where I live, it's um, because of obviously um, the stigma that surrounds porn in terms of what it is and its production and so forth, the valley al- allows porn to be produced in a you know in a discreet, out of the way manner. Mm. You know, it's far away from from you know from L.A. and Hollywood mm. in that sense as well. Um, so I think there's there's that, and then you just you get the spillover effects basically from you know when the industry moved, other people who were already in Hollywood industry here fed in and did roles like camera, signed, mm-hmm. you know, makeup, and whatever else was, you know, goes behind a production of a film back then in the you know in the ni- in the nineteen eighties basically because there would, would have been bigger production. Um, logistics compared mm-hmm. to probably what, what it's like now, basically because mm-hmm. the studio model dominated then. Yes. And now, of course, the studio, mo- the studio model is, you know, is, is it, well, you're, you're in a much better position to know this than I am. It's on its knees, basically, in terms of, you know, the number of studios and, yeah. and, what they're com- and the growth of the non-studio model, if we can call it that. Right, the indiv- right. The individual model. So you're talking about, like, big like professional companies and studios that create these movies and then like individual content creators yeah. like the models who create their own content yeah, yeah. because i mean hollywood's still a, a, a largely a studio based model yeah, absolutely. and it's um i mean there's a growing independent and you know uh film industry mainstream or arts you know um mm-hmm. film industry you can look at like youtube creators kind of in that yeah way. um but they don't seem to have had the same impact on the Hollywood studio model. You know, no. the, the, those studios, I mean, there's probably been um, agglomerations. You know, one studio has taken over another one, like so Fox, for example, right. have taken over some of the older studios and they've just formed these big mega. Right. Um, but that studio model still dominates. Right. Um, but I th- So I think there's been really interesting restructuring. And then I think with... Um, the tube sites have obviously created a, a different, very different landscape. Mm. Uh, but the tube sites, I think, again, even there, I mean, they're now producers. They're not just hosting. I mean, when this all started, and I'm thinking of John Ronson's um, Butterfly Effect mm. uh, show, 
you know, John kind of really dug deep into that and was looking at, uh, you know, how um, the whole tube side thing took off, basically, and what it, how it completely restructured Mm-hmm. Um, the porn industry in terms of the studio based model basically yeah. you know but I think um, so Pornhub Man Geek whatever I mean they now own production houses basically so oh, yeah. at one stage they just hosted stuff mm-hmm. but now they've morphed into a porn corporation in the yeah. in the proper sense of that word if I can use that there now, some people might not like that some of your guests in particular I can think of one in particular <laughs> whose name well I won't say <laughs> well well also too though they, they but they've also bled into the model of individual content creators where now they have you know Pornhub channels I mean I have my own yeah Pornhub premium channel that I make money off of um, model hub models sell their content on there so they you know they've really tapped into all of those spaces yeah, and um, I think with, you know, you get these disruptions in all kinds of industries. Yeah. And believe, I mean, if you go back to video, so VHS and beta. Yeah. Right? It was porn who decided that VHS yeah. over beta. Yeah, and because Sony, who made beta, yeah. they, weren't, they weren't convinced. They didn't want to go down this. Yeah, they wouldn't touch they would, porn. They wouldn't touch it. The end of them. I know, but yeah. And, yeah. But Betamax was a far better quality yeah. tape. Yeah. It gave you a richer quality vision and so forth and sound. Yeah. And, but VHS won out. Yeah. It's you know? so interesting how, so, you know, porn has really kind of been at the forefront of pushing technology forward. The, as much as people, like, want to, you know, bury us and, yeah. and say that porn is, is bad for society and that, you know, it's it's something that, it, you know, we can't possibly ever go mainstream. We've been, like, at the forefront of, like, the war between VHS and Betamax. It was porn that decided it was VHS. The internet, streaming services, e-commerce. Yeah. It's always been yeah. porn. I was going to say online payment of stuff. Yeah. You know, and just setting up that system, that idea, and then the technology that sits behind it as well. Mm-hmm. Now, that's under threat at the moment because there's this kind of new wave of kind of war on porn. Yeah. So banks are closing, um, you know, accounts of people who are in mm-hmm. not, not just porn, but sex workers and, mm-hmm. you know, anybody who uses the internet in various ways for, for sexual labor. Um, and... Depending where you make porn, you know, so in Australia, for example, you have to go offshore for your payment processing. You can't do it within Australia, mm. you know. Um, so you have to do it in, a, in another country, basically, because the banks won't process this stuff. Now, what about um, prostitution? Because there are some legal brothels in Australia. Is that correct? There are. So it's Australia's, it's really complicated geographically. Mm-hmm. Um, New South Wales Mm-hmm. Uh, capital of Sydney, sex work is decriminalized there. Okay. So, and it's been decriminalized since uh, 1995. Okay. But so for those of you listening, that doesn't mean it's legal. No. So no, actually, this is very important. Um, you can be a sex worker in New South Wales and it's not a crime. Right. Okay. So it's decriminalized. Uh, in Victoria, the state of Victoria and Queensland, so where Melbourne and Brisbane or uh, porn sex work is um, licensed. Mm. So that's that's the legalized model. What some people call the right. legalized model. So therefore, it can be sort of regulated by the government. It, correct. 
I mean, it's all regulated, even in a decriminalized okay. in, environment. It's just that it's not a crime if you engage uh, in sex work in New South Wales. In in Victoria and Queensland, there are very tight regulations about where you can do um, sex work prostitution, um, advertising, and where you can't advertise. You've got to buy a license and you've got to register and all of, and all of these things. Basically, and that's where it's legalized. And that's where it's yeah, so licensed slash legalized. And that's a that's an, as, as far as sex workers are concerned, and you know. Um, sex worker groups in, in Australia, they don't like that model because it's too onerous. I was going to say it almost seems like having it legalized is worse than just having it decriminalized. It is. And New Zealand has decriminalized sex work since 2003. Right. Now, in Western Australia, um, it's technically illegal. Uh, but in Perth and in other parts of WA we have what was called the toleration policy. Mm. Um, and there are a number of established brothels in Perth and they're allowed to operate. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they just happen. They're there. They've been there for such a long time. Um, they're like grandfathered in? Well, they're still Ill- it's still technically illegal, but the police, uh, politicians and so forth have, I think, basically acknowledged that they're there. They keep an eye on them, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, they are regulated. They're regulated by planning regulations. They're, I mean, they, they, if a criminal act happens upon them, then the police, of course, can't, you know, get involved and stuff like this. So you have this really weird set of models across Australia, so it can be very confusing. And it's the same in Vegas. Yeah. You know, everybody thinks, um, because sex, sex work in, uh, in Nevada is legalized, mm-hmm. everybody thinks... Sex work in Vegas yeah, is legal. It's not. It's Clark County where it's legalized. If you yeah. go back and listen to my Charlotte Sart uh, interview, she talks about how, because she works in a brothel, yeah. but it's legalized in Clark County, but Vegas is technically illegal. It's illegal. Yeah, it's illegal in Vegas. So it's all the counties outside, basically. Right. And so you have to drive, I think it's like 60 miles or something to get yeah. to, the, to the nearest brothel, basically. Yeah. So, and it's, and there, again, there are funny regulations um, that surround it in terms of um, size of population and things like this. And there, you know, so it's, um, but I think because Vegas has, you know, it's, it's sin city. Right. The stereotype is, is that, you know. Because gambling is legal there, but it's illegal like here yeah. in LA. And, yeah. And so. One of the reasons why sex work doesn't happen in Vegas is is because the gambling industry didn't want to be tainted by the sex industry. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so so, so there's a a perversity going on here. So it's really like the gambling community who fought against sex work being legalized in Vegas? They are part of it in terms of not wanting it because it would taint, you know, um, their image. But it's, you know, you go into, I mean, if you go into casinos, I mean, there are hypersexualized spaces in kind of lots of ways. Um, I guess anything that, like, won't take you from the gambling table, right? Yeah. You don't want a girl, like, taking a guy away from, like, losing all his money to the casinos. So, I mean, the fact that AVN is going to be there next week, um, so the, the, the hypersexuality in Vegas amplifies by, you know, a factor of, 10 or something, right. you know, um, yes. and the whole of the valley or, you know, lots of people in the valley 
migrate down there for four or five days. So, you know, probably nothing happens in the valley during, during next week. There'll be no production up here or anything. No, not at all. You know. Everybody, if you don't go to Vegas next week, you um, girls like will go on vacation. Like, yeah. they'll take that opportunity to go on vacation. But no one's booking shoots. Yeah. Because nobody will be here. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so there are those kind of, um, I think, those um, paradoxes, you know, um, mm-hmm. what I, and, and in terms of the research I've been doing in terms of consumption, I call it the porn paradox mm. because you have mass consumption in terms of online pornography. Mm-hmm. And yet the stigma that surrounds pornography and porn performers yeah. is profound still. Yeah. But yet we will happily consume and, you know, get our rocks off left, right, and center. Yeah, I mean, you write them off with one hand and you jerk to them in the other. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's the best synopsis I've heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, I made that up. I actually did make that up. It's mine. Nobody else can use it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, the stigma that, you know, against adult is something that we face all the time. And uh, we talk about it a lot on our show. I mean, you were talking about banks, um, you know, that has been a big issue with a lot of girls. I had uh, my workers' comp policy canceled because they found out yeah. what I do for a living. And it was just like workers' comp that was covering um, my office employees. So, like, n- none of us are having sex for work. We're just like filing paperwork. Yeah. And, like, but it's picking this, up props. Because you're in the sex industry or the yeah. porn industry, yeah. th- this whole thing is just automatically yep. stereotyped, stigmatized Absolutely. to death, basically. Yeah, and, and usually the response that I get, because I've had the same thing when I tried to apply for credit, um, I just got, uh, we don't support high-risk industries such as yourself. So we kind of get lumped in like with, like we're treated like criminals, yeah. basically, yeah. even though it's legal. Yeah, but and so there's another big paradox in this. So it's, you know, um, you've got this perfectly legal profession, you know, it's um, protected under your First Amendment as well. Yeah. And yet you're being discriminated left, right, and center, increasingly left, right, and center, yeah. you know, um, by other service pro- providers. And people get, you know, when I tell people this, like when I, you know, complained about my workers' comp being canceled, people were like outraged. Like, how can they do that? They can't do that. That's discrimination. You should sue them. This should be I'm like, who's going who's gonna to award me judgment? You know, yeah. and like, what politician is going to run a campaign on like rights for sex workers, like rights for the porn industry? Like we're the last, you know, mine. I mean, you even call them like a minority group that it's acceptable to discriminate against us because I mean, I guess one could see it from the point of view that ultimately, you know, we weren't born this way, right? We weren't born into porn, or maybe I was. Well, but yes. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? So, like, it was something that we chose. Like, yeah. We chose this profession. We chose to work in this. So, therefore, like, we made our bed. We can lie in it. And, like, this was your decision to work in this disgusting, smutty industry. So, you deserve to be discriminated against because you could have picked something else. Yeah. I mean, it would be like saying to, um, I mean, other, other industries, like, kind of like the liquor industry, mm. okay, or the tobacco industry. Right. You know, um, your workers aren't going to get any uh, compensation, workers' comp or other things, because they're high-risk industries, mm. you know, and 
mean, the, the, the effects that they have on, you know, kind of wider society in terms of medical yeah. impacts and stuff, you know. Yeah. We know deaths. that deaths and stuff like that. So how can they get insurance? You know, they're, they're constructively uh, undermining the health um, of lots of people. Yeah. You know, so. But, I, I mean, in terms of your, your point about kind of minority, uh, a minority community, minority group, I was looking at that, that issue in terms of performers as a migrant community because, mm-hmm. come back to your saying, you know, the Valley is the epicenter of um, mainstream heterosexual commercial porn. Right. Um, so I was interested in people who migrate here from whether it's from within the U.S. or internationally to come and work in porn. Mm-hmm. And like other migrant groups, because of their ethnicity or their religion and, you know, those minority groups face ch- challenges when you relocate to somewhere new. You know, the resettlement process mm-hmm. can be a challenge. And one of the biggest ones is housing, you know, trying to get into housing markets. Mm-hmm. And I was really, you know, because I've done, I've done some other work on this in the past, I was saying, so do performers, because they're a minority, based on their labour and what they do, um, do they face kind of these resettlement challenges? particularly in housing, because do you rock up to the landlord when you apply for a rental or, you know, you want to buy a house? What do you put down as your profession, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because um, if you were to put down porn performer, I'm sure the, the vast majority of landlords or realtors would just, no. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Whilst they run off and then go and watch you. Yeah. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so what is it? Yeah. Write you off with one hand and wank off with the other? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And we are going to take another commercial break. I'm sorry. I have a lot of sponsors for this episode. And when we come back, we're actually going to talk about the new um, trouble with Airbnb and sex workers because that's going to be a big thing. So hang on. We'll be right back. Holly Randall Unfiltered is brought to you by... Lalo. Give your partner something unique and sexy this Valentine's Day with Lalo. Lalo is a brand synonymous with sex toys of the highest quality and the top of the line technology. And I am so excited about their new male masturbator, the F1S. I actually used it for the first time with my boyfriend last week and I couldn't believe that sex toys could be this high tech. It's a cylindrical vibrating sleeve that you slide your dick in and the corresponding phone app gives you total control over pressure, speed, and so much more with 10 internal sensors. It's waterproof, rechargeable, and the battery lasts up to two hours. So this Valentine's Day, give your partner a gift to remember. Go to Lalo.com and use my code HOLLY20 to get 20% off any products not already on discount. That's 20% off with my code HOLLY20 at L-E-L-O.com. Or just check out the link in my show notes. But don't forget, you need to use my code HOLLY20 for your special discount. Okay, so we are back. So one thing I wanted to touch on in relation to housing discrimination, because that is now spread into um, housing discrimination just in the term of like vacation rental. So this is something that I had heard was happening from several performers in the past. I'd heard stories that they were denied the opportunity to rent through Airbnb 
because they were um, a porn star. But the story actually just came out where Airbnb basically admitted that they're using technology that allows them to discriminate against people in the sex industry. And there's a great article in Xbiz by our friend Gustavo Turner, who was also a guest on this podcast, if you guys want to read more about this. So I'm just going to read a couple of points from his article. So... Um, The name of the technology on its patent is determining trustworthiness and compatibility of a person. And it stigmatizes sex work and involvement in pornography by grouping them with drug use, membership in hate groups, neuroticism and narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy. (laughs) Now, that is a very broad those are some broad strokes to draw in regards to people. So, I mean, you know, once again, being lumped in to people who are, you know, drug abusers, members of hate groups, it is one thing and that's frustrating in its own, but how are you determining whether somebody is a narcissist? I mean, I know a lot of narcissists, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't rent Airbnbs. Machiavellianism, I'm not even sure what they mean by that, and psychopathy. So then are they determining whether or not are they are they using this technology to decide people are if people are crazy and they shouldn't be using um Airbnb? And it's just like really bizarre because I guess what they're doing is it identifies documents related to a person deriving behavior and personality trait metrics from analyzing the documents for information relevant to assessing behavior and personality of a person to determine a trustworthiness score. So, and they do this through, by combing through ISPs, public and commercial databases, social networks, such as obviously social media, blogs, and other in a cloud. And then they use this to access compatibility as they say. So basically the software scans sites, including social media, obviously for traits such as um, traits that they would consider, you know, narcissism, Machiavellianism, (laughs) psychopathy, or engaging in drug use or sex work, which is just so bizarre. Yeah. Look, I mean, I haven't, I I read that article um, and, you know, in the broader sense of kind of looking at regulation, it's interesting how private corporations as opposed to government entities are now regulating, um, you know, sex uh, culture spaces, you know. Um, I think Gustavo's also been looking at some stuff on um, how Instagram, for example, is basically erasing um, performers uh, but it's also erasing discourse as well. So, because the, there's certain hashtags which won't appear in feeds and so, and so forth. I mean, um, and I was just tweeting this morning actually with Gustavo, all of his stuff, and he was saying even vanilla stuff that he posts on Instagram is now not basically searchable. Right. Um, and I, I'm a victim of this in a very very small way in the sense that I have. Um, hashtag sex toys mm-hmm. and that won't come up. Right. You know, and I'm kind of like, really? Yeah. It's like, what, what is offensive? What is damaging about talking about pleasure? Yeah. 
and sex and sexuality yeah. and legal goods which can be freely purchased, except maybe in Texas where I think they're banned. It's you know, it's, uh, it's uh, there was a campaign on a university there, and they were talking about. Uh, love guns, not real guns. You know, they had yes. they had the vibrators and dildos, and yes. they were like campaigning. It's, yeah, it it's legal a, to go on campus with a gun, with a gun, but not with a dildo. <laughs> not with a dildo. Yeah, it's like which one's going to cause more damage? Yeah, you know, like really? Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I mean, especially in the U.S., we've always embraced violence, but we've always stigmatized against sex. Yeah, the I mean. I think what Airbnb and, and other firms will be doing, because so much of our data now is just digitized. Yeah. You know, and the data that, we're, that we are generating, every time that you post something on any platform, um, your credit record here, you know, that'll be shared or it'll be purchased, you know, uh, by these companies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will do, I think they will, they are building profiles off us because, you know, yeah. the likes, the hearts, the retweets, uh, the hashtags that you um, kind of have in your, your own tweets and on Facebook and all of those things is just being sucked up. We had a, um, had a, a UK academic just come visit us in Perth or just before Christmas and he's done some work on this and he said, and he came off Facebook because of basically his fear of this data being used and abused basically elsewhere and him not knowing who was getting it and what it was being put what it was being put to basically. It feels you know? it's very like Big Brother. You know, I mean it doesn't just, feel Big Brother, it is a big it brother. Is, and it's just, no feels about it, I think. Yeah, you know? and just collecting data on everybody and then using you know, the the things that you like um, and the things that you look at on the internet to, yeah, build this profile yeah. against you to determine whether or not you're worthy of doing something like renting an Airbnb yeah. space. It's insane. So I, I started um, I started surfing two years ago and um, I was reading a paper from back home and I'm scrolling through the paper and all these adverts for wetsuits and surfboards Mm-hmm. were coming up in the in between the article yeah. that I was reading that I was reading. I was like, shit, this is tracking me. And there was something else happened fairly recently and um where I was talking about something and I hadn't been searching for it on Google or anything. I was talking and again these ads oh, so my phone your phone's phone, listening to your phone is always listening to yeah. you. Siri is always listening. It you know, happens all the time. You can be talking um, my boyfriend and I were talking about like marriage and, and weddings because my brother just got married this weekend. And yeah, sure enough, I'm scrolling through Facebook and yeah. wedding rings are popping up. And I was not searching for wedding rings. I swear <laughs> to God, baby, I promise you, no pressure whatsoever. We've been together for over three and a half years. Let's hurry up. Just kidding. Thank God he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> so so it, it, is, it is frightening. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, maybe... One saving grace on this with performers is um, you've got a performer name and you've got a real name. Yeah. Now, it's where those two things, those databases intersect somewhere. Yeah. And I know you've got this new labor law. This is, I, I don't really understand about contracting or incorpor- incorporated or whatever it is. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, um, I don't understand it because I'm not a labor person. But, I mean, that's, I think will create interesting 
issues probably down the line somewhere mm. because if you if it's an official government form and you have and presumably you have to provide all your real details and stuff like this. Well so, no not necessarily. No so, okay. No. So if you incorporate you can choose a corporation name right, okay. that is not is not even remotely related to your porn performer name. In fact, I would highly recommend against creating a corporation name that is related to your performer name because if you use that to try to get credit, whatnot, yep. people look up your name. And this is actually exactly what happened to me when I first started my business. I started as Holly Randall Productions and I couldn't get credit. Yeah. I couldn't get a lot of things. And so what I did was I actually changed my corporation name to something that was really boring that was not even remotely related to what I did for a living. And in that way, I was able to you know, get the things that I needed. But by going by my, you know, using Holly Randall yeah. in my corporation name, I came up against so many, yeah. so many blockades. So, yeah. But, um, but the thing is though, too, you know, with the internet, anybody can find out anything and almost a lot of porn performers, real names are out there on the internet. Yeah. I, I, would, I mean, there's so, some of this data could be turned, I think, to performers advantages, for example. Mm. So I, I met with Katie, Jane last night because we have a I have a panel on at the AVN and Katie's mm. one of the panelists and and because she's a geographer we were talking about you know researching porn from a geography perspective and she was talking about her Instagram account she's got an Instagram business mm-hmm. I, I which I didn't know I mm-hmm. and but she has data analytics yeah you know that's sitting behind that and I said. You should be tapping into this in terms of your PR because it comes up with where her followers yeah, are I, from I and, and it changes. And I was saying, well, what you need to do is, in terms of, I suppose, whatever you're producing or, or you know, marketing is, what is it that's popular in those markets in terms of the geography and stuff? Mm-hmm. And then you can start to tap into those. Uh, you know, turn turn this data that's being collected on you on its head for your own advantage. Well, what's interesting, because I, I have the exact same thing, um, most, a lot of my analytics, a lot of my views come from countries where porn's illegal. So you're going to say India. So here we go. Egypt. Cairo is okay. my, my number one um, country, top locations. Um, Mumbai, Istanbul, okay. Baghdad, Delhi. Okay. So India is number two. The United States is number one, which makes sense. India is number two. Yeah. Mexico, Egypt, Turkey. Those are the top yeah. places. So that's interesting. Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. So even in in uh, countries where porn is illegal or probably very highly restricted mm. and regulated, yeah. You're you know. People are interested. Because, because go back to what we were saying yeah. before, the more you deny somebody something, yeah. the more the more intrigued. Yeah, the more intrigued, curious. You can't ex- sexually repress people. No. It's one of the strongest drives behind all yeah. human behavior. Yes. And when you do that, it often yeah. works its way out in twisted and unhealthy ways. And that's what Chris Ryan was saying when you did the episode with him and yes. his book, basically, is yes. about how... Strong, this kind of evolutionary desire is within us about kind of expressions of and explorations of sex and sexuality. Absolutely, you know. So it's and the government uh, just keeps trying to fucking squash it, and it's just like it's not going to happen. Not going to (laughs) win. Yeah, and it's and why? You know what? um, I don't know. I really don't know. 
Like, I don't understand the fear around sex and sexuality. You know, we have methods to help us, um, you know, prevent the spread of STDs. Um, I mean, you know, better, more education on that would be helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, to prevent unwanted pregnancies, you know, all of these things. Cause I mean, obviously sex can, you know, have effects that are less than desirable yeah. side effects, but, but we have ways in which we can, can help prevent that. And so like and sex ed is, you know, should yeah. be at the forefront of this basically, Absolutely. you know, and, um, I mean, I, I'm on a, the board of um, an organization in, in Perth. It used to be called Family Planning, mm-hmm. WA. It's now actually called Sexual Health Quarters. But they're an organization that provides a whole host of um, sexual health services yeah. to all kinds of groups, you know, indigenous communities, uh, LGBTQ communities, sex workers, young people. Um, they do outreach and they provide, you know, um, certain in-house services, you know, when people do contract a, an STD, mm-hmm. but they have a big, big part of their work is educational yeah. and outreach, yeah. you know, um, because I don't think, se- I mean, sex ed is one of, the, you know, is shied away from it. And it, I mean, when, when I was growing up in, um, in Belfast, it was part of the, re- you know, our religious education teacher taught us sex ed, hmm. you know, so you can imagine what that was like. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it, you probably didn't tell you everything you needed to know. No, it, you know, you learned about, well, puberty, that your body would change. It was very, it was a very biological right. kind of model or approach to, um, but there was nothing um, about relationships, for example, and understanding. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to a Catholic school and it was an all-boys school, mm-hmm. although there was an all-girls Catholic school mm-hmm. Directly next door to us, yeah. separated by a canteen. Yeah. We would have lunch at one time, we'd come out, and then they would come in and have their lunch after us. Yeah. So it was kind of, you know, this regulation of, yeah. you know, gender, sex, you know, sex, sexuality, down to that level basically is about keeping people apart. And yeah. The same in primary school. I was on one side, all the boys were on one side of the school, and the girls were on the other side of the school, and a corridor divided. Both of the schools, basically, yeah. and you, you don't, you know, you're not taught about consent. You're not taught. You're not taught about sexual health, right? And you know, I, I mean, I believe certainly that you should have age-appropriate sex ed from as young as possible. And I think parents should be, you know, very intimately involved in this in this education process, yeah. as well as schools, you yeah. know. But you know, ultimately, parents, you know, I think, um, you know. With, I mean, I've got two two kids, and uh, you know, we use the proper terminology for body parts, mm-hmm. you know, as well as the various slang words. Mm-hmm. But I would rather they heard them from us and understood, and they were explained to them, right? So that when they're outside and somebody says it, and somebody goes uses a particular word and they use it incorrectly, they can go, "That's wrong." Yeah, you know, it's actually this. Yeah. So, vagina being a good example. No, it's not a vagina; it's a vulva. Yeah. You know. And also too, it was interesting. I was actually listening um on NPR. They there's a whole podcast that they have that is um for parents um and how to raise children and then there was an episode about sex talk and and the the times to have certain 
you know, because you kind of have pieces of the sex talk as the child gets older. You know, you start from a certain age because yeah. obviously they're too young to understand certain things when they're, you know, you want, like you said, age appropriate. And uh, they talked about proper terminology. And they also talked about how teaching your kids about sex and teaching your kids about body parts, that, that education is actually a great way for children to be able to understand when they're being approached inappropriately by somebody like a pedophile or something like that. You know, having that knowledge yeah. is great armor against the possibility of getting roped into some kind of, you know, horribly, um, you know, sexual exploitation or something like that. But they need to know about those things and what is okay and what is yeah. not okay. N- knowledge is power. Yes. And I think if we can uh, inform, educate, raise awareness, uh, young people, you know, at, at the appropriate age. Because mm-hmm. they'll come and I mean, kids come and ask you, where did I come from? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the stork brought you. Yeah. And they're like, who's going to buy that? Yeah. You know, I mean, they'll see their, um, you know, if they've got a brother or a sister on their way or something, they'll see their mom with a big tummy and they'll, they'll say, oh, there's a baby in here. And they'll yeah. go, how'd it get in there? Yeah. I mean, can't say a stork brought it. Yeah. You know, it's I just remember, like, what? I remember when I was a little kid, my parents bought me a book that's called Where Do I Come From? Yeah. And it was like a cartoon um, children's book about sex. And it was obviously for very young kids because when they described se- I'll never forget this. It was my favorite book. Surprise. But um, when they described sex, they talked about a man having a penis and they talked about a woman having a vagina. And then they said... That when sex, what is sex? Sex is when a man and a woman really love each other and then they get in bed together and they get very, very close to a part, to a point where the man becomes a part of a woman and part of the woman and this is when they have sex and this is when they can have a baby. And then it was like, what is sex? What does sex feel like? Sex is kind of feels like being tickled with a feather, but nicer. (laughs) And then the next question was, well, if sex feels so good, then why don't people have sex all the time? Well, sex is kind of like jumping rope. It's really fun when you do it, but after a while you get tired, so you can't do it all the time. (laughs) But, you know. But it was appropriate appropriate for the the age when I was, you know, asking these questions. I mean. Because you can't really, like, you don't want you know, to talk you, you, about penetration. You don't, no, you don't, you don't need you don't, to get into those you, details. No, of course so. not. Of course not. But I think when people get to being teenagers, of course, then well, that's, it, you, yeah. you up the awareness and you up, you, you up the detail, you know. And, but you figure out a, a clever way of doing it because, you know. Um, Otherwise, they're going to learn from Pornhub. Yeah, and, you know. Or other places, basically, you know, yeah. wherever they'll go. They'll hear it in the playground. So they'll get it either secondhand from some other kids who have seen porn, maybe. Mm. Um, or they'll get it firsthand, mm-hmm. you know, themselves, basically, mm-hmm. with other friends or by themselves, basically. I mean, kids aren't dumb. They've, they've got an awareness that porn exists. Yeah. They don't understand it. And this is where they, I think the sex ed's important. Yeah. Because they, be, they need to understand, um, you know, I suppose... And it's going to be kind of very reductionist in a way, I suppose. So what is porn sex and what is real sex? I was just going to say it's important for them to understand porn within, with context. Yeah. You know, so it's, um, uh, 
one is manufactured, one is fantasy, one is scripted, and you know, there's um, you know, in the piece, one of the pieces I wrote, you know, I was sent it by kind of the uh, the kind of the, the sexual athleticism that's portrayed mm-hmm. in porn, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know what's you know how you've cut and edited everything to kind of yeah. make it look like it lasts exactly. longer than three minutes, you know. <laughs> so it, la- you know, God, that lasted for. 23 minutes they were going at it for 23 minutes and you're like and i can on pornhub the average time is what nine minutes and 38 seconds yeah you know so and on my own it's even less yeah you know so um so they have to they have to understand those the big differences you know absolutely you know uh, otherwise it's movie making it's not it's not real it's really not like you know we we cut and the girl like, you know, like say an anal scene, like we cut before the anal happens and usually like apply a generous amount of lube onto the girl's butthole before yeah. the guy penetrates her because otherwise it's going to be painful. Yeah. But we don't show that because yeah. it takes the fantasy and the sexiness out of yeah. it. So like people need to understand all of the things that happen behind the scenes um, that make porn look the way it does. Yeah. And and sometimes I'll tell people about like little tricks that, that we'll do to make something look more intense than it is. Yeah. I'm like hair pulling. A lot of times what guys, what people will do is that they'll put their hand at the base of the person's skull, hold the hair, but they won't actually be pulling it. And yeah. the girl will pull her head back against the person's hand to make it look like their hair is being pulled, but yeah. it's actually not being pulled. I mean, on it's like WWE wrestling. Yeah. On non-porn movies and Hollywood movies, I mean, um, just I mean Harry Potter. Yeah, let's take Harry Potter as an example. I mean, we don't figure out how the broomsticks fly, you know, yeah. and stuff like this here, and you know, because broomsticks can't fly, you know, yeah. some magic, some movie magic happens to make this happen. Yeah. You know, the Avengers movies. Yeah, you know, they can fire. Shoot fire from their, you know, from the palm of their hands. Yeah. You know, no, they can't. You know, <laughs> it's it's digitally created and right. integrated into things and stuff like this right. here. You know, the rock can't really lift, you know, a two-ton rock, when, you know, when he's in Jumanji or whatever it is, mm-hmm. basically. And they don't fall from the sky and have three lives and survive. Yeah. You know, it's all, you know, it is all part of the fantasy. Right. You know, but I think maybe... There is a role for because in DVDs are you know we get the you know the extras mm-hmm. and you find out about you know how in a mainstream movie this is how such and such is made right you know is there a role for that for example for you know educational extras mm-hmm. in porn yeah to happen basically yeah. and that because you know if there's another kind of big war on porn war on obscenity. Then the industry would have to, I, I would imagine, would have to respond in some way to kind of, you know, uh, counter the the stereotypes and the, the claims mm-hmm. that are leveled against it, basically mm-hmm. as well. You know, on facts, not you know, not made up stuff. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, and also too, the problem is, is like the mainstream media won't really give space for people like myself and other people who want to educate people about porn. They won't give us the space to do that. Yeah, You know, if anything, whenever you see uh, mainstream media covering porn, it's usually some salacious story that, you know, um, 
confirms everybody's bias against porn, that it is an awful place where people are victimized. So, you know, when you want to come forward and educate people about porn and tell them about what it's really like and the behind the scenes and how we make these things work and, and how it is not like you think it is, that that's not a story. No. People are not interested in that. It's boring. It's boring. It's bland. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it's a bit like, um, I think, people's perceptions of the valley. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people who watch porn, lots of people who watch porn, and if they know about the valley, they they might have this image in their head that, you know, you can visually see all this hyper-pornification. Mm-hmm. The valley is the one of the blandest <laughs> suburban environments yeah, true. that I have ever been in. Yeah. And that's another part of my research, is kind of looking at suburbs. But, it, you know, it's just... It's a normal place. I mean, yeah. I think I've seen one strip club um, on the val- in the valley. Yeah, you know, it's it's not this wild, hyper sexualized, you know, crazy environment. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's normal. Yeah, just like it, you know, any other suburb. Yeah, you know, yeah. Valley's normal. Porn is normal. We're all normal people. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really educational. Thank you, Holly. Um, before I go, though, can yes. I have a little gift for you? Yeah, that's okay. Sure, so, I'll take gifts. W- where's my bag? Can I can I, I step know. out of frame? Where should I put your bag? I don't know where you put it. Oh. So, so this is from Australia. This is okay. From, this is from Perth. Okay. And it's only a little gift, but it's cold here at the moment. It is. So this is one of the football teams. Oh boy. And this is the Fremantle Dockers. Okay. Thank you. I so hope there this you is go. a I hope this is a team that my my family in Perth actually supports. Otherwise I'm gonna well, be in a lot the, of trouble. We have two teams in the in the in the Aussie rules. We have okay. uh Fremantle Dockers and the West Coast Eagles. Uncle Nick, is this okay? They're uh, they're the working class team. Okay. Um and the West Coast Eagles are the Chardonnay oh middle class set. I guess I'm gonna find out. Put it. <laughs> <laughs> How does it look? <laughs> Good, right? <laughs> awesome. All right. Great. Thank you, Holly. It's been a, an ambition and a dream to be on your show. So thank, thank you so you. much for letting me thank on. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, no. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media or any other links you want to plug? Um, find me on Twitter at, at Planographer. Mm-hmm. And that's P-L-A-N-O-G-R-A-P-H-E-R. And I'll be at the AVN this week. I've got a panel looking at uh, the issue of consent and sexualized leisure. Oh, wow. And I've got Katie Jane, Jessica Drake, and Rob Piper on the panel, as well as a professor from uh, UNLV, Barb Brintz, and Lynn Camella, who's another professor. She does a lot of really interesting stuff on sex sex. Feminist sex shops and sex toy stuff as well. And she's going to be our moderator. So it's on Thursday, 1 o'clock, Festival Hall C. Come and see us. Okay, great. So that's a good news for all my Patreon members who are watching this live because this is actually going to come out after AVN. So everybody watching on the free platform, it would have already happened and it would have gone swimmingly and it was an incredible panel. And congratulations on a great show. It was superb panel. <laughs> and uh, you guys can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Holly Randall. 
you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash hollyrandallunfiltered. And also I have a Facebook group. Come join the conversation, facebook.com slash groups slash hollyrandallunfiltered. Thank you again, Paul, for coming out. My pleasure. And thank you guys for watching. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to my show. If you're a longtime listener or a new one, I've got a lot of interviews. So make sure you check out everything from the beginning of my catalog because there's some real gems back in the early days of the show. And if you enjoy this show, there's a couple of things that you can do to support it. First of all, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, rate me five stars and leave a review. It's incredibly helpful to get my show up in the charts. Secondly, you can join my Patreon for as little as $5 a month and watch the interviews stream live, which, by the way, gives you access to my episodes way before anyone else. You can also get signed prints, books, merchandise, such as shirts and mugs, access to my private Snapchat, and a free membership to my website, hollyrandall.com. Plus, I offer tons of bonus content. Q&A with your favorite guests that you cannot hear on the free platforms. And of course, my exclusive bonus podcast, My LA Porn Life, that I do with my production manager, Eva. It gives you a real and hilarious insight into what it takes to run a small porn company like mine. Because trust me, my job, though stressful, awkward, and facepalm ridiculous as it is sometimes, well, it's never boring. And we definitely give you the juicy behind-the-scenes dish that you can't get anywhere else. Plus, Eva's dating life is absolutely hilarious, and she holds nothing back. So go to patreon.com slash hollyrandallunfiltered and join the community. Your support helps me in my journey to change people's minds about the adult industry and hopefully the lives of the people in it. All right, guys. So next week on the show, I am finally bringing you all of my amazing interviews from the AVN show in Las Vegas, Nevada. I've got so many interviews that I had to spread them across four different episodes. I'll be doing two a week. So the next two weeks is going to be just a huge variety of interviews with your favorite stars, Natalie Mars, Kenna James, Casey Calvert, Joanna Angel, Michael Vegas, Rod Jackson. So many people, I can't even name them all, but it's it's going to be a lot of fun. There are short little mini bite-sized interviews, but we definitely get into some interesting topics. So make sure that you come back next week for the very first episode of my interviews from AVN 2020.